Well, good morning. Uh, for those of you who are keeping track, this is Mark chapter 10. Uh, we're going to be looking at verse 17 through 27. Uh, this was a very difficult section to try to break into smaller parts. Um, and what I, I was comforted by the fact that no one does it the same way. Everywhere I looked, everyone does it differently. So this is what I decided we're going to do. We're going to look at these. And uh, it comes directly after our story from last week in which Jesus said, uh, you have to become like a little child. Jesus said, you have to become like a little child. And that, if we keep that fresh in our minds, everything we say after this comes directly after that. You have to become like a little child to enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this. Uh, your gospel story, we thank you for um, bringing us out of the world into, into this church this morning so that we would hear again about your son, that we would draw nearer to him, that we would um, grow in our understanding of him. We pray, Lord God, that as we open your word this morning, that it would open our hearts and minds, that it would reveal uh, what is there that is displeasing to you, uh, what is there that is harmful to others, that you would comfort us and convict us in exactly the way that each of us needs and, Lord God, that you would get all the glory. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your Son, and amen. amen. Now, Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 31, is a single unit expressing the essence of Jesus' teaching concerning entrance into the kingdom of God. Everyone is interested, how do we get into the kingdom of God? This is what he's been talking about, um, not only uh, in this story, but the, the story just preceding it. Everybody else is worried about uh, their glory. Everybody else is worried about what they're going to get. And really what they need to learn about is how to get into the kingdom of heaven. For Jews, they just assumed, you know, because they had the little hats and the, little, and the right clothes and the long beards and everybody showed up at the synagogue when they were supposed to, that everybody automatically was in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is trying to get them, he's trying to shake their tree hard enough to get them to see that not everybody who, you th who thinks they're in the kingdom of heaven is in the kingdom of heaven. And no better um, example of this was than to put a small child in their midst and said, to, to thus belong the kingdom of heaven, to this child belongs the kingdom of heaven. It precedes the third major um, prophecy of the Passion. Directly after this, Jesus is again going to tell them what's going to happen to him. He's going to give them the roadmap to victory, which is a path of death and destruction and failure. Uh, and they, they, he's going to do it for the third time. Why? Why is he doing it for the third time? Why is he getting ready to tell them again that if you want to be uh, with me and of me, you have to be a loser? It's because all they want to be still is winners. Me, me, I'm going to be great in your kingdom, right, Jesus? Uh, no, no, not with that attitude. If you want to be somebody in my kingdom, you have to first become a nobody. If you want to be a winner, you first have to become a loser. If you want to have everything that the Lord God offers, you have to come with nothing. And they don't get it. And so he's, he's telling them. He's going to tell them a third time. And in order to do that, he's softening the ground here. right? In farming, you don't just go out and put seeds in the ground. You go out and you till it first. You make it soil that is actually usable. This is him now trying to break up um, the cold ground of their hearts so that the seed that he's going to lay would actually take root. Now, do you remember how important the parable of the seeds was earlier in the story? He's out there right now doing heart surgery on them, just softening the ground so that the seed at least could go down into the soil. 
Right now, he's just throwing the seeds, the truth of what he is going to do and who he is, and it's just falling on cold, hard ground like we had outside this morning. So he's working it because he's merciful. He's merciful and he's kind. And merciful, right? We don't usually think of a plow blade as merciful and kind. If you've ever seen, how many of you guys have ever seen a plow blade? It's a giant knife that you stab the ground with and then you drag it using horses or mechanized purposes and you are literally tearing a hole in the ground, a long one. And that's what he's doing here. Uh, there's a number of misconceptions that we have to be very clear about. Jesus is not teaching that wealth is evil. Okay, Wealth is not inherently evil. It's inherently neither good or bad. It, it presents particular temptations, however. He's also not saying that poor is, it equals righteousness. Right? Poor people aren't just automatically righteous because they're poor. Rich people aren't necessarily evil. Uh, just because they're rich. If that were true, there would be no Americans in the Western world who would ever go into the church of God. We would all be disqualified. He did not teach that only the poor can be saved. He did not teach, uh, he did teach that discipleship is costly. Discipleship is expensive. That wealth is often a hindrance to repentance and acceptance of the gospel. The thing is, whatever you've got, whatever you have going on in your world, you have to understand the dangers of it that cause you to not follow Jesus. People who are poor have certain temptations and certain roadblocks and certain crutches that they're, that they're using that, that, that prevent them from following Jesus. Rich people have a particular set. What's happened is a lot of people have taken this story and said, now this is now Christianity. Take, if you, you want to be a Christian, sell everything. Okay, well, if, if all the Christians sold everything and we were all poor, who would take care of us? Right? There, there was a, a book called the, the, well, uh, the Gospel of Wealth, and it was written by uh, one of the train barons back in the day, you know, who became like the first gazillionaire. And he said, the only reason that God has given me the ability to, to run this company so well and make all this money is so that I can give it away. And, and his name was Carnegie. Uh, and you may, any town you go into, uh, if you go and you look at the library, almost all of them in the Midwest were built by Carnegie, all of them, public libraries. Schools, halls. He wanted to give back to communities. He wanted to help them because he understood the purpose of wealth, right? And, and, and any Christianity that says poor equals righteousness, rich equals evil is not, not correct. It's not biblical. It's not right. Now, the demand imposed upon a person who wishes to enter the kingdom is heightened, and the utter impossibility of attaining the kingdom through human achievement is underscored in this story. We all want to know, how do I live forever? Tell me how I live forever. Does this man come to Jesus and say, tell me how I can be a better neighbor? Help me be a better husband. Hey, how can I run my business in a, more, uh, in a way that honors God? No, no, no. What is this man's concern? Getting into heaven. How do I live forever? How do I have eternal life? And and. <laughs> He thinks that Jesus is just going to give him like the what the cookie the uh, fortune cookie answer here, right? Think happy thoughts. You go to Never Neverland, right? A little sprinkled dust straight onto the moon, second star to the right, or whatever it is. That's what this guy is hoping for. He's hoping for directions to Neverland. The incident of the wealthy man who sought out Jesus in order to learn the requirements for securing eternal life provides the setting for a startling proclamation of the demands of the nature of the kingdom. 
This is an enacted parable. Jesus has taken the little children. He says, you have to become like one of these little children. And now what he's going to do, is, and what he does again and again and again, is he's going to act out this story that clarifies the thing that he just taught. You have to become like a child. Here comes this rich man, and what does the rich man need? Well, he needs to become like a little child. That's what he's doing. And, 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 and what happens to the rich young man is the opportunity now for Jesus to tell all of his followers what it is they need to do in order to enter eternal life, the kingdom of God. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Now we get to the main course. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit inter- eternal life? The eager approach of a man while Jesus was setting out on his way, the kneeling down, this posture of humility, the formal address, all of these things together, the weightiness of the question, suggests that this man has a very deep respect for Jesus. He is in genuine earnest. He came to consult Jesus as a distinguished rabbi and showed him the deference reserved for revered teachers of the law. He's not just coming up and saying, oh, let me just touch him and run away. He's not just trying to get something from Jesus. He has a lot of love and respect for Jesus. He comes, he throws, right? How often do you think a rich young ruler kneels in front of people, especially a homeless guy, right? Here's a homeless guy, and the rich young ruler comes running up on his knees to him. How often do you think this man has taken that posture? What what does he think of Jesus then? He thinks Jesus is really somebody. He also says, good teacher. And this is very strange because this does not have any parallel in Jewish writings. They don't usually talk this way. They say rabbi, right? They even have some versions of the word Lord. But good teacher seems a very interesting way of putting it. What does that reveal about what this man thinks about Jesus? Good teacher. Now, the form of the question reveals a great deal as well. What must I do? What must I do? to get eternal life. Now, he assumes, right, it's all on him. It's not, the kingdom of heaven isn't something that's given out. The kingdom of heaven isn't, right, it's not, it's something that he does. He thinks he, he earns it. He thinks he merits it. He thinks, right, show me the ladder and I'll climb. Show me the tunnel and I'll go through it. What do I have to do to get in? In the light of verse 20, the man evidently thought that there were conditions to be fulfilled beyond those set forth in the law. (laughs) The law mastered that. What's next? Well, this guy seems pretty good. He seems like a teacher. He seems to know more than other people. Let's go find out since I've mastered the law. I'm keeping the law perfectly. There's got to be more. There's got to be more. And this man must know what it is. Perhaps we are meant to think that this man believed he and Jesus were good men because of their deeds. Right? He thinks Jesus is good because of what Jesus has been doing. So he recognizes a kindred spirit. I'm a good man because of what I do. He keeps the law. What, what else do I need to do? Well, this guy seems to know what to do because look at all the power that's flowing to him. Look at all the, how big the ministry is. Look at all the authority that he seems to have over all these people that are following around. I mean, who follows a homeless guy around? Mark chapter 10, verse 18. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. In verse 18, 
It's a rebuke to the idea that human beings can be called good because of their works, or that the ultimate good in life can be achieved by doing something. Jesus responds by directing the man's attention directly or back to God. The referral of the question to God, bowing before the Father, giving him the glory, Jesus is places Jesus' response within the context of the lordship of God. Why are you calling me good? There's only one good person. There's only one good being. Now, for those of us who are keeping right track of what's going on from the very beginning of this gospel, why are you calling me good? Only God is good. If the man understood what was going on, the man's reply would be, well, because you're God. <laughs> but he doesn't get that. So I, this is one of those moments where Jesus' mouth kind of curls up in a little smile and then he moves on because nobody understands what he's saying. Oh, me good? Only God's good. <laughs> uh, by the way, uh, keeping the law, and then he moves on. It, it's very funny. It's really weird how Greek works because th- this is clearly a joke. This is clearly a little joke that Jesus is making. right? He set his face to Jerusalem. He's going there to be butchered, and he still has time for a little mirth. I like that about him. Jesus takes very seriously the concept of the envoy. That's what he is. He said this before in Mark chapter 9, verse 37. Whoever receives a small child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Right? Jesus is not about Jesus. It's about the Father. I'm just here on behalf of God the Father, which you all desperately need badly. And, and, but, but don't make it about me, make it about him. Right? Does Jesus have every reason to boast? Right? I, I like that reading from this morning from Paul. Right? Hey, you guys, oh, you want to do some boasting, Paul says. You guys want, oh, you want to compare? I'm a Jew's Jew over here. I mean, think, think that's Paul. He's, he's not divine. Think of how Jesus could boast at this point. But he doesn't. Yeah, you want to talk about good? Let me tell you, man. I've been, I've been doing... Let, let me just tell you about the good I did this morning before breakfast. No. He, he points, he puts the attention. He's here. He's an envoy of, of Jesus, or of the God the Father. He is the one who's come, and if you accept him, it's not just that you're accepting him, you're accepting God the Father. The rich young man's idea of goodness was defined by human achievement which is actually possible in one sense. There there is something that's going on here. There's an assumption that this man is making that's actually true, that usually throws people a little bit. But there is actually a way to obey the law and to obey God in in his covenant requirements and be called a righteous person, a, a truly righteous person. This is what it says of John the Baptist's parents in Luke chapter 1, verse 6. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. When they committed a sin, they took the right um, bird or sheep or whatever it is they needed to do, and they went and they took care of business. They understood that they were not perfect. They understood that they sinned, and and they fully availed themselves of everything that God gave them in order to make it right. So you see John the Baptist's parents, who are very devout, very pious, And you see, look at these perfect, righteous people. And that's what this man is trying to attain because it's actually attainable. It's actually attainable. Yet there's kind of a weird mystery here. 
if he's kept the law so perfectly, if he's wealthy, which we're going to get into, is a sign of God's blessing, saying, yeah, this man has kept the law, and I'm going to show everybody that he is of the kingdom of heaven by making him rich. If that's true, why does he need more? There's something very interesting going on here that we'll miss if you read it too quickly. This man is anything but settled. From, from the outside, everybody else, all the other Jews following Jesus are like, if that guy can't get into heaven, who can get into heaven? And yet this man is coming to Jesus saying, how do I get into heaven? Because all the external stuff that he's doing, all, right? he can boast in all kinds of things. And in his heart, he knows it's not enough. This man's religion, in one sense, has failed him miserably. Because he needs more. He needs more. Jesus' response confirms the basis of this belief from, that I, I talked about from Luke chapter 1. You can't actually obey the law and be called a righteous and perfect person. This is what it says in Ezekiel 33.15. If the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has taken by robbery, walks in the statutes of life, not doing injustice, he shall surely live, he shall not die. He shall live forever, is what they think it means. So they've taken the covenant, right? covenant obedience, covenant faithfulness. You will be called a righteous person. But now what they think, they think is it's, it's just like a paint-by-number kit. If you have faith knowing that, okay, I can't be a righteous person. I've got to slay this lamb. I've got to cry out to God. He needs to forgive me. I need him. I need to go to his temple and worship him. I need to de- devote my entire life to him. If you understand the covenant, the old covenant this way, you will be a righteous person. But what the Jews has turned it into is just this, okay, do X, Y, Z, and you'll be perfect. Oh, or when you're rich, man, you really, you really are very righteous. Oof, look at the size of that bank account. They've turned it into a game. There, there's no real faith in it. And you can see that because this man is not settled. If he was settled, he wouldn't be coming to Jesus and asking him how to get into eternal, how to gain eternal life. Jesus, though, is also saying something very interesting about the law. He's not opposed to the law. He's asked how, about eternal life, and the first thing he does is he starts quoting the Ten Commandments. So many of us think that he just chucked this. He's like, well, you know, we've had this thing called the law, and it's, it, was, it didn't really work out. It was kind of horrible. And thank goodness Jesus came to save us from it. Right? Now it's very simple. You just, you know, love your neighbors as yourself. Um, okay, what, what does that look like? Right? What does Paul do? He goes to the Ten Commandments. Because there really, there really is something to the law. So here Jesus is making righteousness about obeying the law or not. He's not saying, well, no, now I'm going to set up a different law. He's upholding the law of Moses because the law of Moses is love. That's what it says in Romans 8. What's love? Uh, don't steal stuff. <laughs> don't, don't covet your neighbor's wife. Don't lie. The law is the standard to Jesus. Okay, now that's very important, but did anyone notice something about the laws he mentioned? That's not all ten of them. It's not all of them. He mentions what they call the second half, the second table. Because the first table is what? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not take the Lord's, or you shall not make any graven images. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And that's about love for God. What Jesus does here is he says, oh, you've kept the commandments, and he lists all the commandments that have to do with a neighbor, leaving out the ones that have to do with God. Now, why? Why would he do that? 
He doesn't want to ask this young man a, that direct of a question because he's going to fail. Right? All of those, that first half of the, of the Ten Commandments, that first table, they call it, is all about your personal relationship with Jesus Christ, with God the Father, with the Lord. And he wants this young man to see his own heart. He wants this young man to really understand himself. And if he came at him too directly, it's, it's not going to work. So Jesus is being very clever here. But what he is certainly doing is upholding the law. Right? He's going to test this man's devotion to God in a different way. He wants to expose his self-righteousness, his works righteousness. Mark chapter 10, verse 20. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Now, what he's saying is, <laughs> have no other gods before me. Don't take my name in vain. Don't have a graven image. Come, follow me. That's what he's saying here. This is the first table of the law. Because Jesus is who? Jesus is God. Is this man willing to give up everything that he owns in this world to follow Jesus? Right? At this point, does he, he clearly doesn't know who Jesus is. Really, he understands he's a respectable teacher, but he doesn't quite get, just like the disciples don't, who this man actually is. And so, right, you got, okay, here's Jesus. He sleeps outside. He's got some, I mean, he's got Peter and these other weirdos following him around. And you're like, okay, well, I don't know, I, I got a really big TV and like this nice leather armchair, right? And I got this lady who just cooks whatever I want. Like, I'm going to leave all that to follow a homeless guy? Who they're now conspiring to kill? <laughs> that, that seems like life. My, my queen-size bed, right, with the Egyptian cotton sheets seems like life. This guy seems like he's going to die soon. I don't know if I want a part of that. All I want to know is where's the ladder to heaven I can climb up? The man has kept the commandments since youth. Whew, that's hard. Good on him. Good on him. I have definitely not kept the commandments since my youth. I'm trying to imagine the chutzpah it would take to say something like this to someone, right? You, someone you know, right? You turn to your wife. Yeah, I've, I've kept all these since my youth, right? How You couldn't even get halfway through that sentence. Mark is making clear that the demands of discipleship to Jesus go beyond the demands of the law. It's actually harder than that. It's harder than keeping the law. Now, how many of, you, how many of us would ever say it's easy to keep the law? I mean, even the Old Testament version of it where it's not as clear that even thinking about adultery is adultery. Back then you just had to, right? It's not, oh, thoughts are off limit. It's just what you do. And it's pretty hard. But Jesus comes along and not, he upholds the law, but he says, now it's actually harder than that. It's actually harder than that. You have to give up everything, everything in this world and follow me. You want, you want heaven? You want to get into heaven? Okay. Here you go. Here's the ladder. Me. I'm the ladder. I'm Jacob's ladder. I am the thing that gets you into heaven. I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. 
and and now oh okay um, actually not lying seems a little easier than what you're asking me to do the answer to question 17 how do I attain eternal life John 7 uh, this, I'm going to read now from the Gospel of John chapter 17 verse 3 and this is eternal life this is eternal life that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent right I, the story about the rich young ruler we, we turn it into something more complex than it really is because all he's doing is answering the simple question. How do I get eternal life? And he's not setting a standard now where all the people who want to get in have to be poor or, or you can't be a rich person because they're wicked. No, he's answering a very simple question. Oh, you have all of these things. You have all your own righteousness. You have all this wealth, all this power. And, and you, you, you're asking me about a ladder to heaven. Well, I'm the ladder to heaven. So yeah, put all that other stuff away and come on, let's go. Right? You can you can ride on the camel next to Peter. It'd be great. The command to follow Jesus is an invitation to lay hold of eternal life. It's not for your best life now. Okay? That's not what it is. It's it's not so that when you you, you go from here you get this golden palace somewhere in the sky. It's very ethereal, right? I won't have to work hard. It's been a while, but my favorite blues song. What what's heaven like? You don't ever have to change your socks, and the handouts grow on trees, and the whiskey flows off the rocks. Right? That's, that's what most of our view of heaven is. But heaven is a person. Now, <laughs> Piper asked this question. If you could have, right, you think about heaven, you think of all the stuff you're going to get, and if you could have it all without Jesus, would you still want it? Most of us would say yes. Right? If you, a little too quick, we'd be like, oh, oh. Well, Jesus won't be there at all, but I'll still get all that other stuff? Yeah, I don't know. Roads made out of diamonds seems pretty cool. How hard would that be, Dan, Jared, to make a road out of diamonds? We'll talk about it later. The bar has been raised. This, this is what I love. This is Jesus. He says, yeah, we're going to respect the law. We're going to love the law. But now that there is the standard that the law was talking about is present with you. Jesus is more than the law. He says, yeah, it's not just about this list of things. Uh, check, check the list off. You have to give up everything and come with me. Be with me. Be present with me. That's why he came into this world, to be present with us. Because that's what eternal life is. That's what salvation is. That's what wealth is. We're not too shocked. Chapter 10, verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. That's the first time they've actually mentioned that he's rich. Jesus wasted no time. He knew exactly what that guy needed. He knew exactly what he needed. Jesus doesn't hate rich people. He knew that young man is walking around with these crutches. Where, right? These crutches, his own wealth, his own righteousness. I get around on these. I don't need any help. I don't need any wheelchair. I don't need anyone to carry me. I get around all by myself. I pull myself up on my bootstraps. I'm a self-made man. 
And Jesus comes and he wants to just kick those crutches right out under his, uh, from his feet and fall on his face. And he's like, okay, now we're getting somewhere. Now you're down on the ground where you belong. Now come. Come with me and you will live forever. It's the only time in the New Testament someone comes happy to Jesus and leaves sad. It's the only time. Right? All through this story, people are coming and they're depressed and they're, and they're hurt and they're you know, full of fear and terror and they come and they meet Jesus and it's glorious and they leave and they're happy. This man comes and he's, he's like, oh, I'm going to fall down before you. This is great. Tell me some, how to get into eternal life. And he leaves depressed. He leaves shattered. Because he finds out, right, that everything he thought he knew about himself, about righteousness, about the law, about heaven is wrong. And, and, and now, the, right, what are the majority of the stories in our lives? We come to him and we're broken and we leave and we're healed. But there are times where we come to him and we don't need any healing and he breaks us. Right? And those are the times, when, right? Sometimes we want to define our entire faith by those moments not seeing them for the gracious act that they were. But there, there are a lot of wealthy people sitting in this room, right? And I, I, we get into this. Wealthy compared to who? Well, okay, Bill Gates, he lives in Medina. I'm not comparing you to him. I'm comparing you to the poor schmoes, right? I, I just saw a chart the other day of the only six countries you can drink water straight out of the tap. And I was like, is it really that few? It's like, I just, you know me, I, I take the water that I could drink out of the tap and then I put it in this other expensive jug that cleans it for me. We, there's only, I mean, really? I thought like we fixed that problem like uh, 50 years ago or something. I thought everybody drank out of the tap. We are wealthier than we realize. And there's a lot of us who need to come to Jesus and go away sorrowful. Because we, we need to realize there's crutches. We need to realize there are things that we are holding on to. There are things that we are clinging to. Our own bootstraps. We're propping ourselves up with these ideas about ourselves and what righteousness is. And what we need is for him to kick them out from underneath us. The standard is, is Jesus the standard is Jesus. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus. You know it. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Right? What do you call the man who is sitting on the throne of heaven? I would say he's the wealthiest man there is. The wealthiest being there is. And he gave up all of that so that he could come down here and bind the strong man Satan and plunder his house. And all he asks is for you too to become poor like him. That's all. Just poor like him. Become like him. Lay down everything else that you, right? All the things he had at least did make him glorious. All the things we possess think make us glorious, but they really, right? What are we laying down compared to what he laid down? He is the standard of love. He is the standard of humility. He is the standard of what, right, what righteousness and holiness is. He laid it all down to obey his father unto death. What accounts for the rich man's failure is the call of the kingdom of God with its demand for absolute self-renunciation. Throw it all out and follow me, is what he's told. 
The refusal of the call only serves to accentuate the greatness of the renunciation demanded and the uniqueness of the twelve. I don't usually compliment the twelve at this point in the story. That usually comes after Pentecost. But there is at least something to be said about the fact that the twelve of them really did give up everything. Remember that? I mean, he says, hey, come and follow me. And they hopped up from their, you know, from their tax booth and from their fishing table, the, the, the boat and the nets and everything, and they just go follow him. This guy hears the call to follow him and he leaves and says, I'm not having any of that. And it's, why is he depressed? He, re, he maybe does realize that that guy he just talked to is the ladder to heaven. There's some belief there. The 12, though, they didn't blink. They just got up and said, where are we going? But (laughs) the other character that we need to talk about in this whole story, because there's Jesus, here's the rich young ruler, and then there's his 12, Jesus' 12 homies, sorry, disciples, sitting around him, his friends, who've been following him, who've been doing the things he he does, who've been seeing everything, and they are at this point a little confused, if if you don't remember. And they're sitting around, and now this rich young ruler leaves, and they're sitting there, stunned, absolutely stunned. Because who was Jesus working on, just the rich young ruler? Or was he using the rich young ruler to unsettle his own followers? This is what it says, Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. What? (laughs) What? That, Jesus, what are you talking about? What are you talking about, Jesus? Jesus' comment on the difficulty encountered by the rich in entering the kingdom of God draws its force from the refusal of this particular rich man to abandon everything and to follow him. Now, this is directly contradicting. What Jesus does here is directly contradict well-established Jewish teaching that rich people are like, you can almost, they're already in heaven. Right? Heaven started here, and they're just going to go on forever with it. The fact that a rich person, a rich Jewish faithful man, isn't automatically going in the kingdom of heaven to them is quite baffling. Now remember Job. Job, right? In the very beginning, Job chapter 1, verse 10, this is what Satan says about Job. Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Satan's like, I can't, right? I can't do anything to him. You're protecting him. And, and we can see that you're protecting him because he, the rich keep getting richer. Job keeps getting richer. See, I can't, what can I do, Satan says. The Jews took this and thought, okay, so, so rich people have a hedge of protection around them. Their wealth is a sign of the fact that God favors them. And it doesn't help at the end of Job because at the end of Job, this is what it says. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Wait, wait. So, so God's favor is seen in all my wealth. And then if it goes away, right, and I become this picture of righteousness and humility like Job does, in the end I'm going to be twice as rich? Wow. Sign me up for that. I'll take it. All i got to do is sit around and scrape myself with a pot chart for a few chapters. 
have my annoying friends yak at me incessantly, and in the end I get twice as much? Psalm 128, verse 1 and 2. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. You'll have the nice car. You'll have the the cable package. You'll live in the nice house and the good neighborhood with the good schools. It'll be great. And because God loves you. right? He loves you, and he wants the best for you. A related strand in the tradition of the Jews is recognized that the poor are a special object of God's protection. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 22 and 23. Do not rob the poor because he is poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate, for the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. Right? The possession of wealth permitted generous gifts to those in need. This is how they understood it. I have a bunch of stuff, and as long as I remember the poor people who God particularly likes, it's already good for me, and that's just putting a little icing on the cake. Right? My life is already eating cake. And now you can put icing on the cake? Yeah, all I got to do is occasionally, when the poor people come to my back door, which is how they used to do it, you would take your leftovers and give it to them. Little, little pocket money on their way. And, and for all the way until, I mean, the 16th century, this is how poor people were dealt with. They come to the back of the nice ha- big house, and you give them your leftovers, and you give them a little money. And as long as a good Jew did that, along with everything else, he's cruising. Nobody ever thought to give everything away. In fact, Jewish law, Jewish law permitted or did not allow you to give everything away because then you would also be a poor person. They're like, well, who's going to take care of you? So they actually did not allow people to give away all their possessions to take this part too seriously. So as long as you give a little, not anything too crazy, we don't want you to be poor, but as long as you remember the poor a little bit, you're fine. Okay, so this rich young ruler, in the eyes of the disciples, couldn't be closer to the kingdom of heaven. In their mind, he's probably a little closer than Jesus. Right? Because what does Jesus have? He sometimes sleeps at Peter's mother-in-law's house. Right? That's pretty homeless. (laughs) That's particularly homeless. (laughs) Jesus said to that poor rich young guy, you lack one thing. Do you think, right? The disciples at that moment must have been like, okay, something is going on. Jesus is doing one of those things. That guy doesn't lack anything. There's nothing that guy lacks. Mark chapter 10, verse 26. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible. With God, Jesus has done it again. He's totally unsettled them. He's he's brought them to the edge of despair. Who can be saved if what you're saying is true, Jesus? How is there hope for anyone? Who who is ever going to be in the kingdom of heaven? If all all the people we think are automatically in aren't in, who is, Jesus, who is? Their their frustration is palpable. What are you talking about? Is there going to be anybody there, or is it going to be God the Father all by himself, enjoying a feast alone? Who can be saved? Who can be saved? Everything that they think they understand about salvation has been turned on its head, and they are despairing. Why would Jesus do that to them? Why would he do that to them? I thought Jesus was just supposed to say, like, nice stuff. Calm people down. Heal them up and stuff. 
Why, 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 why is he throwing all this shade at everybody? <laughs> you know, and there been a, at least this time they're not confused, like, like before, like where it's like mysterious what he's saying. They get exactly what he's saying, and they do not like it. Right? We're halfway through this book now, more than halfway, and at least they're starting to get what he's saying directly, which is that, hey, that, good job, guys. Good job. You're terrified. I'm sorry about that. But at least there's no confusion here about the intent of Jesus' words, right? So, so he's, he's, he's trying to heal their blindness, and so now they see, and they're like, okay, okay, it's not trees that we see. It's men, but it's still a little confusing, Jesus. It doesn't make any sense with everything else that we know, Jesus. Why are you doing this to us, Jesus? We've, we gave up everything to come out here with us, and you're telling us that nobody can make it into heaven now. What is all of this about? If a pious person whose wealth is a sign of God's favor will not be saved, what hope of deliverance from hellfire does anyone have? Anyone. Eternal life, salvation, entrance into the kingdom describe a single reality which must be bestowed as Jesus' gift on men. It's as easy for a man to get into heaven all by himself as it is to get the largest animal they can think of through the smallest hole that they can think of. That's what this camel and a needle is all about. There's all this weird stuff being said about it's like a gate. or No, he, he's telling them. It's as easy for a rich person to, to squeeze their little self into heaven all by themselves as it is to get this giant camel, which is the biggest animal you can think of, through this tiny hole, which is the smallest hole you can think of. And, 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 and it's impossible for man. It's impossible for man. People take this verse out of context all the time. Everything and anything isn't impossible for man, but possible for God. He's talking about salvation. You want to get that rich person into heaven? You want to get that camel through that tiny hole? It's impossible for all of you. I can squeeze any one of you into heaven. I can get you into heaven. I am the ladder. I am eternal life. Right? Who's good? God's good. So who does that make me? He's trying to get them to understand who he is and what he's doing and how what they think the kingdom of heaven is and their way of getting in is not the way. Put it all aside. You are not focused on the right things. They have crutches too. That's what this whole story is about. The rich young ruler has a crutch, and he doesn't need Jesus. He's not a small child who is completely dependent. The disciples aren't, because they think just, oh, well, you know, we're going to go with him. He's going to be the king. It's going to be great. We're all going to get in, and we're all going to be great when we're there. We're going to sit at his right hand and his left hand. It's going to be amazing. They don't understand that he's the prize. They have all kinds of crutches. They have... Endless amounts of crutches, endless amounts of roadblocks to following him. And this is what Jesus is trying to get them to see. Children can't do anything for themselves. Their existence is defined by need. I, I've, told you, I, I've told you this story before, right? My kids wake up every morning, and every morning they're just as confused as they were yesterday about what is for breakfast. Okay, well, uh, it's called cereal. Well, where's bowls? Well, you're 12. You've been done this a few times, but uh, the bulls are in this cupboard here. We didn't move them. I mean, I can't find things right now because they've started to unload the dishwasher. 
We, I mean, there is the coffee maker. I, we could not find for a week. I had to buy a new one. <laughs> I don't know where it is, right? I'm, I'm more confused. <laughs> I have a reason to be confused. They're like, milk, what's milk? They are completely helpless, utterly helpless. And it's only in hands that possess nothing from this world that the riches of heaven will rest. Right? He wants us to be like my kids. What do we do? How do we do it? Well, I, I told you yesterday, but I'll tell you again because I'm a loving father. And unlike your, your earthly father, I don't get tired of telling you again and again and again and again. I will fill your empty hands. And, and I'll do it with joy and I'll do it with love. This is what I want. And we'll do it again tomorrow. That's what he wants all of us to be like. But I obeyed your commands, the rich young ruler says. I conquered the world in your name. Behold, the kingdom that I have built, I rule it with righteous obedience to your every ethical command. But you don't need me in such a kingdom, Jesus says. You don't need me in that kind of kingdom. You've gained all the righteousness all by yourself. You're wealthy and you don't have any kind of need. You don't need Jesus in that kind of kingdom. Give up that kingdom and follow me into my kingdom. Come with nothing in your hands but dependence. The wealth of the rich young ruler is a crutch upon which he leans instead of the Lord. Jesus says, cast it away and follow me like one of these helpless little children, like one of my children. When he was answering them at the end of this, he said, children. He referred to the disciples as children. He really wants them to understand, you are my children, and you need, to, you need to know that you're my children. Helpless little babies. Those who can save themselves, the worthy of this world with their riches and outward obedience, Jesus doesn't want anything to do with them. Go away. Put it away or go away. Right? He doesn't mind. He doesn't stop this rich young ruler and say, wait, 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 wait. Let me put it in a, more, in, in a way that will appeal to you a little more. Put it away or go away. What is the crutch that you lean on instead of the Lord? Is it drinking? Is it power? Is it money? Is it authority? As a husband or a father, is it your looks? Is it your wealth, your intellect, your creaturely strength, your status in church, your work, your status in society? What is your crutch? What do you need to cast aside so that you can come with empty hands, with no agenda but the Lord's? Not as his aid, but totally dependent upon his aid. If we think we don't need, if we are unimpressed with Jesus' high view and implicit demand for childlike dependency, if you think you're self-sufficient, then the fullness of Jesus will elude you forever. You'll have a partial Savior. Right? Even you're, Here you all are already in the ark. You're already here in the ark being saved. And if you, sti- if, if you think, okay, now I'm in and I, do- I don't need him, you're like the rich young ruler. Well, I've obeyed the commands. I went to church like I was supposed to. I read my Bible like I was supposed to. We didn't watch that much NC-17 on Netflix this week, so we're fine. We're good. Right? For so many of us, God is just the sidekick in our quirky rom-com. We look at our lives and we're like, yeah, I'm pretty awesome. And Chewy, he's great. He's going to see us through. 
The Lord knew what was in the rich young ruler's heart, and he loved him. His surgery was quick and precise. He cast aside your wealth and follow me. On this path, you need no crutch. It's straight and it's narrow, and it leads to the land without crutches. You go to the land without crutches, and the way you do it is without crutches. Pray to God that you would have eyes. It's like Steve said this morning. It's really hard to see your own crutches. It's really hard to see the thing that you depend upon, the thing that you boast in that isn't Jesus. Pray that God would have mercy on you and give you eyes to see it so that you can throw it aside. You can't earn eternal life. No matter how wealthy you appear in this world, how obedient you appear in this world, you need him. He's the ladder. There's no other ladder. Awesome, you're obedient. Super, great. You're wealthy. Awesome. You give a little here and there to people. I praise you. You're better than a lot of people who will also burn in hell unless you realize the only ladder into heaven is Jesus. May we all go from here this week and cast aside our crutches and follow him, chase him, run after him like a little kid lost at the fair. Daddy, daddy, come back. Don't leave me. And you will find that his hand is there to hold yours and to lead you onward, to lead you forward, to lead you to eternal life, which is him. him. And amen. Father, we thank you so much for the precise heart surgery. Jesus is unwavering in his mercy. He is kind. He is gentle. Lord God, we know that the things that you say to us and the things that that happen in our lives are difficult to understand, are at times very painful. At times we go away very sorrowful. And I pray, Lord God, that you would give each person in this room the heart surgery that they specifically need, that you would show them what their crutches are, and that they would cast them aside and, and, and throw themselves upon your son, Lord God, and be delivered from themselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.